You're listening to TIP. It's the way that I look at this in investing. I think it's, we're coming into a world where most of investing is driven by public policy, specifically the Fed. I think the best times to buy would have been when the Fed steps in because that's when things reverse. And I think that actually was the exact bottom of, of, of the recent, of the March 2020 madness, right? On today's episode, I'm joined by Joseph Wang. Joseph is a former senior trader on the Fed's trading desk where he conducted open market operations and studied the global dollar system. With this experience, there is no better resource than Joseph when it comes to learning about the Federal Reserve. He's also the author of the book Central Banking 101, which is a great read for those wanting to learn even more about the Fed. During this episode, Joseph and I cover what the Federal Reserve is, the role it plays in the overall economy, what their dual mandate is, the actions the Federal Reserve took in March 2020 when they nearly doubled their balance sheet, whether liquidation events are a buying opportunity or not for long-term investors, how the stock market affects the Federal Reserve's decisions, Joseph's thoughts on what a global macro restructuring might look like, his thoughts on CBDCs and if they are coming in the US, and so much more. I'm so grateful that Joseph took the time to join me on the show today, and I know you're going to learn so much from this conversation. With that, here's today's discussion on the Federal Reserve and central banking with Joseph Wang. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Money Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today I'm joined by Joseph Wang. Joseph, welcome to the show. Hey, Clay. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you are the expert when it comes to the Federal Reserve. I had a chance to read through your book, and it's definitely no wonder that not too many people understand how our financial system actually works, you know, like really understand it in the manner that you do. And this stuff is just so complicated. So it's great that you're able to take the time to join me and help break it down for our audience. Let's start just at a really basic fundamental level. Talk to us about what the Federal Reserve is and the role they play in our economy. That's a great question. The Fed, at a very high level, you can think of it as a lender of last resort for the banking system. And that's really how it started. For example, sometimes if everyone were to go to a bank, and would try to withdraw their money, bank might run out of money temporarily. And in that case, the bank has a liquidity problem, then it can go and go to the Federal Reserve to borrow. Well, the way that a bank works is that, let's say I deposit a million dollars into a bank. The bank is actually not going to keep a million of dollars on deposit in its vault. It might have like 100,000, for example. So, so it's possible if everyone goes to ask the bank for their money back at the same time, that the bank runs out of cash. Now, that can often be a source of panic. Now, if we didn't have the Fed, and we didn't always have the Fed, that could lead to a banking crisis that precipitates into economic downturn. I guess some context might be helpful in thinking about this. Let's suppose you work every day and you take all your money, you save it, and you buy a million dollars worth of house. And you have a million dollar house, and that's all you own, and you have zero dollars in your banking account. Now, you're rich, right? You have a million dollar house, but you have nothing in your banking account. So let's say the bills come due, your cable bill, $50. 
you can pay that, right? Because you have a million dollars, except that you don't have it in cash. It's not that you don't have a solvency crisis. What you have is a liquidity problem. But in other cases, let's say it's a homeless person who doesn't have a house and also has nothing in their checking account. When that $50 bill comes due, the homeless person has nothing to pay for it. He doesn't have a liquidity problem. He has a solvency problem. These two problems, liquidity and solvency, are oftentimes what banks face. But if you're going to a bank and you try to withdraw money, you can't get any money out. You can't tell if it's just a liquidity problem, the bank will have cash tomorrow, or it's a solvency problem, the bank made a whole bunch of bad loans and you know, you'll never get your money back. So when this happens, people have the instinct is to just try to get as much money out as possible because you just don't know. And you, you know, just to be safe, you want to get all the money out, you can. And then the word gets out and everyone goes to the bank and withdraws money. And then the bank can really collapse. So that's how things were before, before the Federal Reserve. In fact, when we had liquidity crises and bank runs, it was the private sector that would step in and bail the banks out. Uh, most famously, uh, J.P. Morgan actually was the big man on Wall Street in, back in uh, 1907. That he's the one who actually orchestrated the bailout and saved the bank system in the panic of 1907. The public sector saw this and realized that you know it would be a good idea if we could have a central bank that could act as lender of resort to the commercial banks. That's how the Fed came about acting as lender of resort. So now, for example. Banking crises. We had one in 2008, but uh, I mean, you don't often hear about banks failing and people losing everything. And that's because if a bank ever has a liquidity problem, they can always get an emergency loan from the Fed. Now, that's how the Fed was historically. Since then, it's grown a lot. Now, the Fed now has its fingers in all sorts of things. It regulates banks now, for example. Um, so it can make a decision as to how risky a bank's loan portfolio can be. And it's also very active in the financial markets, as we know. Fed is, did QE, bought a whole bunch of treasury securities and also agency mortgage-backed securities. And the Fed is even active internationally. It's very active lending US dollars to uh, actually foreign central banks through its FX swap lines. The Fed started back in the day as a lender for last resort for banks, and now it's really grown a whole lot. And it's become a very, very powerful and important part of our economy and financial system. You mentioned that the Federal Reserve is the lender of last resort for the banking system. Let's take that a step further. Could you talk to us about the Federal Reserve's dual mandate and what they are actually trying to achieve for the economy? The dual mandate is what you really want to keep in mind if you want to understand what the Fed is doing. The Fed has a dual mandate, and that's price stability and full employment. What that means is that the Fed wants to make sure that uh, you know, the unemployment rate is low, you know, if the economy is doing well, people have jobs. The other point, which I think we were much more familiar with, is its inflation mandate, which is to keep inflation around 2%. And in thinking about this, it's helpful to, to understand how the Fed views it, because oftentimes there's a trade-off between these two mandates. For example, the Fed's tool in trying to achieve its mandate is, its, is raising interest rates, right? That's what the Fed controls. When you raise interest rates, what often happens is that you slow down the economy. And when you slow down the economy, a lot of things happen, but one of which is unemployment rises, and, but also um, inflation goes down. The Fed has this awkward dual mandate where sometimes the two push against each other. When you raise interest rates, you're going to mess up your full employment mandate a little bit, but you'll hit your inflation mandate a little bit. And this trade-off in economic jargon is called the Phillips curve, and it actually hasn't worked very well for the past 10, 20 years, but that's often how the Fed sees it. When you're looking to what the Fed is doing right now, this dual mandate is kind of the key to understanding it. 
Right now, the Fed looks at the economy and it sees a very, very strong labor market. So the market is at full employment. That's its mandate. It's met. Then it's looking at its inflation mandate, its price stability mandate. Inflation is at 8%, very, 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 very high. That's why you can understand the Fed is hiking rates very aggressively. According to its mandate, that's what it should do. And that's what it's doing. Once things start to sort of break down in the economy, call it what happened in March 2020, we saw markets just in a frenzy. What actions can the Fed take? And you know, there's talk that the Fed can just print all of this money. And a lot of people ask me, okay, what do they actually do with this money? So could you help expand on that for the audience? So Fed printing money, that's an interesting way to think about it. And it is true, but there's also another way to think about it, which I'll get into in a bit. But just going back to March 2020, Claire, you know, you mentioned that Fed as lender last resort being just a simple concept, and that's what it is. And that's how you should think about March 2020. Fed was acting as lender of last resort, but not just to the banks. The Fed has massively expanded its uh, reach, being more than just a lender of last resort to banks. But now it's a blender of last resort to a wide range of economic actors. For example, in March 2020, it acted as a lender of last resort for the broker dealers, for the money market funds, and even to some extent to the corporations. If you recall, back then the Fed had this corporate credit facility where it was actually indirectly buying corporate bonds, right? In a sense, it's, lending, it's acting as a lender of the last resort to the corporations. And if you remember back in March 2020, there were a lot of foreign banks who were clamoring for dollars. The Fed stepped in with its FX swap lines and became a lender of last resort, tune of you know, almost $500 billion to foreign, uh, foreign central banks. The Fed, in times of crises, has expanded its role to being a lender of last resort, not just to banks, but to everyone. And that's what it was doing now in March 2020. And actually, it's kind of nice that they did that, because otherwise, I think things would have gone much worse than, than they otherwise would have. If you recall in March 2020, it looked like the world was ending and then suddenly the markets bounced and we kind of went straight up until recently. It could have gone very differently. And that I think it's largely because of the Fed. About how the Fed prints money, that's actually, that's literally true. The Fed is a central bank and it can create money out of nowhere. And that's how it makes loans and that's how it buys things. But I think it's also interesting to think about that what you think of as money in the financial system really a lot depends on who you are. Okay, I'm talking about this as we think, as in the context of, let's say, quantitative easing, which is what people talk about a lot. If you think about money, for you and I, for example, Clay, money is a deposit at a bank, or it could be pieces of paper that are printed by the government. Now, that's uh, you know, a Ben Franklin, so to speak. But if you think about it, let's say U.S. Treasury debt, debt issued by the U.S. government, it's, it's also government paper, right? And it's printed by the government. It's safe. You know, in a sense, it's not all that different from a $100 bill, other than that it also pays interest. Now, you can't go to Wendy's and you can plop up $100 in treasuries to, to buy a hamburger, but there are a lot of other things, a lot of uh, very deep market. There's a very deep market in uh, cash treasury securities where you can easily convert that to spendable money. When you are an institutional investor and you have billions of dollars, you can't just have, keep your money in a commercial bank you know, on deposit at JP Morgan, because what if you have a billion dollars on deposit at JP Morgan and suddenly you know, JP Morgan goes bust? And you lose it all. So there's some credit risk there. And you obviously can't have a hundred, you know, a billion dollars worth in cash sitting in your drawer. You know, that's not safe either. If you are an institutional investor, what you think about as money are actually treasury securities. When you're thinking about quantitative easing, you want to think of out the Fed printing money, but it's using that money to buy treasury securities, 
which is you know, another form of money. So you're kind of printing, let's say, printing $100 to buy another $100. That's kind of what you're doing. That's kind of why quantitative easing didn't seem very uh, inflationary and wasn't, even though I think people misunderstood it when it was rolled out. And going back to how we started this, lender of last resort, yes, that's, that's absolutely the Fed just printing money and lending it to people. So is it fair to say that quantitative easing is simply the Fed printing money and purchasing treasury securities from the US or is there more to it than that? That's a very accurate description. So at, at a high level, you can think about the Fed just changing the composition of money rather than increasing the quantity of money. Let's say, Clay, you have um, you know, $1,000 worth of treasury securities sitting in your broker account. Okay, That's what you look at. And the Fed comes in and it buys it from you. And at the end of the day, instead of having $1,000 in treasury securities in your brokerage account, you have $1,000 in, in cash. That's really all quantitative easing does. It changes the composition of money in the financial system. I mean, from your perspective, I imagine if you look at your brokerage statement, having $1,000 in, in treasuries isn't all that different from having $1,000 in cash. But what major difference though, is that when the Fed does something like this, it puts a bid in the treasury market. So it pushes up treasury prices which is the same way as saying it pushes yields lower, that is to say it lowers interest rates. And that's the whole intention of quantitative easing. It's to lower interest rates. The Fed sees the economy or sees its own toolkit through the lens of interest rates. So if it wants to accomplish something, what it tries to manipulate is interest rates in the system. It has two tools to do this. One is it adjusts the overnight interest rate, and that's called the federal funds rate. And that's what the Fed you hear the Fed hiking or lowering, that's what it's actually doing. But the problem is hiking or lowering the overnight rate kind of only influences interest rates up to one to five years. If you want to influence interest rates, let's say 10, 20, 30 years, you got to do something else. And that's, that's what QE is trying to do. It's trying to lower longer dated rates. And when you lower longer dated rates from the Fed's perspective, you, know, you encourage investing, lending, it really depends on the sector and economy. Some sectors in the economy, like housing, are particularly interest rate sensitive. For example, if you think back the past couple of years, we had a you know, 2.5% mortgage that made uh, a lot of people buy houses. And part of that is because Fed bought a whole bunch of treasury securities, pushing interest rates lower. That's the real economy effect. The other effect has to do with um, financial assets. As we all know, quantitative easing makes the equity market go to the moon. And there's a reason for that. The reason, and this is basically the intention of the Fed, okay? So if you think back to Ben Bernanke, Ben Bernanke said we were doing part of the reason of what he called the wealth effect. If you're an investor, suddenly, okay, Clay, let's say you got, go back to our example, you have $1,000 in cash in your, in your brokerage account. Well, here's the thing. I don't want $1,000. I want my money to be doing something. So what do I do? I go and I buy something else. It could be a corporate bond. It could be Apple stock. You go and you do something else. And that is the mechanism through which QE pushes up asset prices. And it's absolutely intended to do that. And we've seen that over and over again. The Fed at the moment, and I think they still do, thought that, well, we have an economy that has low inflation, right? So this is the post-GFC world. And an economy has relatively low growth. How do we encourage people to go and buy something? Maybe, you know, if they looked at the brokerage account and, you know, the Apple stock went up and up and up, they'd feel rich and they'd go and buy something. So that's, uh, that's kind of how they were thinking. It's kind of how it worked. Oh, by the way, if you look at what happened the past two years, it works sometimes too well. The more I kind of study this stuff and study what the Fed's doing, it's more this so balancing effect 
They need to give liquidity to the markets and try and maintain stability, but not try and provide too much liquidity like they did you know, over the past couple of years. And I've been studying the long-term debt cycle a little bit, and I've rewatched Ray Dalio's brilliant video, How the Economic Machine Works. And it really makes me realize how much our economy is really driven by credit. How easy is it for people to go out and get loans? And raising interest rates, what they're doing right now is going to decrease the amount of credit in the system overall because less businesses are going to go out and borrow money. And you know, once they want to stimulate the economy, they can lower interest rates and make it easier for companies to go out and raise capital. You mentioned how QE pushes up asset prices, but historically, it hasn't really caused inflation in the overall economy. And that's something I definitely agree with, where they lend out this money to the US government, they buy all these treasuries to push down interest rates. And you don't see that money really get into the real economy. You just see it stay in the assets market where you know the stock market gets pushed up, the real estate market, and all the other markets. And I think that uh, definitely helps support the economy because if wealthy people have these assets, they're able to go out and you know maybe take out a loan for a bigger house or a bigger car. I think having asset prices also help stimulate the economy like you just mentioned. And Clay, I think you made a really good point that a lot of the times it, the people who benefit a lot from it are the wealthy. And if you look at Fed data, you'll find this striking fact that I mean, almost all the financial assets in the economy are, are held by, you know, let's say top 10% of the people in, in households. And I think that that might be part of the reason why QE wasn't as successful in stimulating the economy uh, right after the financial crisis. It, it made stock prices go higher and made rich people even richer. I mean, but when you already have, how many houses can you have, right? How many cars can you have? So that made things that rich people buy, you know, go up in price, like, let's say real estate in California. But most people did not own assets, so they didn't benefit as much from the asset inflation. But I think these past couple of years, we've seen that assets that are, I think, more broad. First of all, there's obviously more participation in the stock market. You now we can see that with Robinhood. And there's a lot of participation from a wider swath of audience in the crypto space as well. And we've seen those assets go higher a lot. Maybe I think one difference between today and just a few years after the, the GFC was that we had asset price appreciation today, but it was also more broadly, uh, there's more broad participation and those people work are spending it. And you know, I've, there's quite a few times where I've seen very nice cars with BTC on license plate. It does seem that might be a difference, but the wealth effect is working better this time around. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. 
Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. When I try and figure out what sort of involvement the Fed has in the economy, I like to look at their balance sheet and how that's changed over time. I have it pulled up right now, and I see that they had just under $1 trillion in assets in 2008. That moved up to $4 trillion and stabilized from 2015 to call it 2018. And then it did come down a little bit from there. And then March 2020 came along. When we just saw a massive spike. In the span of just a couple of months, the balance sheet increased from $4 trillion all the way to $7 trillion, which makes 2008 just look like it's nothing. Could you talk about what exactly happened in March 2020 to cause this massive spike? I was on the desk, so on the desk that time. And we were buying treasury securities and agency and business like there's no tomorrow, like you know, a trillion dollars a month. That was just an absolute insane time. And that's part of what you saw in, in, the, in the balance sheet, just the Fed going, pulling out all the stops and just kind of spraying money everywhere. I would go back to our example earlier in our discussions. We have a solvency issue or we can have a liquidity issue, right? March 2020 was a liquidity issue. In contrast, and we can talk about this later, the great financial crisis was actually a solvency issue. March 2020 was a liquidity issue. Suddenly, you know, everyone, the economy shut down and Everyone was worried about what happened, and so they, they wanted to have cash. What they did was, first of all, again, if you're an institutional investor, if you're like a mutual fund, you hold your cash in the form of treasury securities. You take your treasury securities and you sell them for cash, and then take that uh, to meet, let's say, your business needs or to meet your investor redemptions. So there's a tremendous demand for, for liquidity at that time. The problem was that so many people sold treasuries at that time, at the same moment, that the market couldn't handle it. Because for every buyer, you have to have a seller, right? So when you have everyone in the world you know, just trying to raise cash, well, 
the market needs to find someone to sell treasuries to give them cash, and then couldn't find that. So the market froze. The Fed had to come in and basically provide liquidity to the entire treasury market. Okay, so you can think, for example, going back to our banking example, when you and I go to a bank and we ask for, we try to withdraw our money and nothing comes out, we panic, right? In the same way, you can think of all the huge uh, mutual funds, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds trying to sell their treasuries, showing up to the treasury market, trying to sell their treasuries for cash, but they're not able to get any money out. They all panicked. And so everyone was selling everything. In this classic liquidity panic, what the Fed did is the Fed came in and acted as lender of last resort, or in this case, the buyer of last resort. So for everyone who was selling treasuries for cash, the Fed bought them and got them to the tune of you know, trillion, trillions of dollars. And that was actually what broke the uh, liquidity squeeze in the treasury market. And once you fix the treasury market, which is the core market for all financial markets in the world, everything began to move again. And just to be sure, of course, the Fed had a number of other lending facilities. So it was lending to the corporations, to the dealers, to money market funds. It also had a special facility that lending to, to commercial banks who were part of the PPP loan program as well. So it was just pulling the stops and, and lending. And that's what you saw there. It's just the Fed greatly expanding its reach and lending to everyone suddenly. Now, you know, I think it's also worth mentioning that the Fed, since this is kind of a very important part of understanding the dollar and the Fed, is that the US dollar is a, is a currency that's used not just in the US, but actually used all over the world. For example, if you're in China or if you're in uh, you know, India or even in uh, you know, many parts of Europe, a lot of times you borrow in, in dollars. You borrow in dollars because you have to do business in dollars. If you are doing international trade, let's say you're a Japanese company buying from a Norwegian company or buying from an Indonesian company, you, you actually are transacting for the most of the time in US dollars. Because the US dollars is a global trade currency, people get loans in dollars from foreign banks. But the problem is uh, foreign banks, they don't have access to the Fed. When there's a liquidity problem, they can't just show up and say, Fed, can you help me? Because you know they're, they're a foreign bank. They're far away in another country. And that's fine most of the time. But when there's a crisis, as like there was in March 2020, the Fed also steps in and it starts lending, acting as lender of last resort to all these foreign banks as well. It may sound strange, but it's actually the Fed's own interest. Because when these foreign banks need dollars to you know, meet their redemptions with withdrawals, if they can't get it, then they'll show up in the US and start trying to borrow at very high interest rates. That prevents the Fed from being able to control domestic interest rates. So in order to control domestic interest rates, which is the Fed's toolkit, it also has to be an active lender in dollars to foreigners. To control domestic and dollar interest rates, the Fed also has to control offshore dollar interest rates. And that, again, was also a big part of the huge balance sheet expansion. Basically, it was the Fed bailing out the world. One question I always often ponder with what happened in March 2020, do you think there's this sort of liquidation and cascading that went on as well? Say, for example, if you have all these traders in the stock market, the position they have on their, their uh, the share they own goes down 10% in a week. And all of a sudden, they have all these leveraged trades that get liquidated and they get margin calls. And then it's sort of a, you know, a cascading effect where the share price of a specific stock is just like crashing because there's all these sellers that were leveraged up. Is there any sort of that going on in this? 100%. 100%. When you're at the Fed, you actually, you know, people come and talk to you all the time. And there are many people who are, who are really hurt. I think what you're getting at, these mechanics in the market, leverage and liquidity are extremely important in understanding market action. I will give you a, you know, let's say an example. 
that was really well known. So a lot of hedge funds basically got liquidated during March 2020, not because they their um their trades well because their trades went bad, but mostly because of just the mechanics of the trade. For example, a popular hedge fund trade was called the cash futures basis trade, where they would sell a treasury security future and buy a cash treasury. Let's say, for example, they sold uh, they promised to deliver a treasury security next month at a price of uh, 101, so a dollar and one cents. Now, they sold this forward at 101, but they're buying it in the cash market today, let's say at 98 cents. So they're trying to pocket that three cents arbitrage by buying, by selling something forward in the future at 101, and then buying it in a cash market right now at 98, and then delivering that, delivering the cash treasury you bought today into the futures contract, pocketing that three cents. Now, this is usually a very safe trade, but back then, something strange happened. Now, you expect as the contract date approaches, the cash price, the 98 cents, converges to the futures price that you logged in at 101. So when that happens, that's how you make your money. And 100%, it will absolutely converge to that. Um, that's just how the market works. But, 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 but between here and now, a lot of things can happen. That three cent, mar- that three cent margin you are harvesting, it can widen significantly before converging. So it can go, let's say, maybe uh, the cash treasury market, the cash market breaks, the treasury sells down from 98 to 90. Okay. Now, eventually it's going to have to converge. Well, it doesn't matter if it converges because you're going to, you locked in the selling price. So you're going to be able to sell that at 101. But if you bought it at 98, the cash treasury at 98, and it sells down to 90, you have to put up additional margin to maintain that trade. And if you don't have that margin, well, then your broker is going to liquidate you. You know, it's like buying any stock and suddenly it drops and you bought in a margin, you get liquidated. And when you get liquidated, then you can't come back anymore. Now, if you could hold it, if you had enough margin to hold it, it's fine. Eventually, you go to the contract delivery date, you'll be able to sell it at 101. Everything is good. You get that three cents. But before that happens, the spread widens, then you, know, you don't have margin, you get liquidated, your losses get crystallized, and then you go out of business. And many people, many, many hedge funds um, were in that trade and they had to get out. Actually, heading into March 2020, the hedge funds were, had very high exposure to uh, treasury securities. And since then, they've reduced that by about a trillion dollars. A lot of people got washed out then. And it wasn't just the hedge funds in that trade. There were similar trades, um, like mortgage rates, for example. I will also have, let's say, buying mortgage securities in the cash market, but hedging it in the derivatives market, and then you know having to face margin calls and getting wiped out. So it was a very common thing, and I'm sure there were many retail investors who bought stock on margin and then suddenly had margin calls. So it was a something that it's a pain that everyone shared. Naturally, as a long-term investor, when I ever hear that there is forced selling occurring and people are being liquidated. All that screams in my head is buying opportunity. What are your thoughts on that? Is it a buying opportunity when this sort of event happens, or should investors be a little bit cautious? One hundred percent. Like if you bought at the bottom in March, I think it was like March twentieth. You know, you would have multiple, you increased your money by multiple times, right? I'm just looking across the commodity complex, for example. A lot of the things that were sold were sold one because of forced selling um, due to liquidations, like you mentioned, but also due to poor liquidity. Liquidity is, let's say, how much you can buy or sell in a market without moving the price. And when you have panics, liquidity tends to get very poor. When you even sell a little bit, then the price moves a lot. 
So when you have poor liquidity and you have these leveraged washouts, you can have huge price moves that generate these phenomenal buying opportunities. Not just in March 2020, if you think back to, let's say, I think March 2009, that was the bottom of the, of the GFC. Those turned out to be phenomenal buying opportunities. But the problem is that you don't actually know when the bottom is. If you bought a little bit early, you would have uh, you know, lost even more. I think it's the way that I look at this in investing, I think it's, we're coming into a world where most of investing is driven by public policy, specifically the Fed. I think the best times to buy would have been when the Fed steps in because that's when things reverse. And I think that actually was the exact bottom of, of, of the recent, of in the March 2020 madness, right? That's when the Fed decided to pull out all the stops and come in in size. I think looking at things like fundamentals is, is useful, but paying attention to what the Fed is doing and understanding why did it and trying to predict what it will do, I think is actually probably the single most important factor in investing uh, these days, in my view. You also outline in your book, the repo market, which you know I hear that and I'm just like, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. What exactly is the repo market and how important really is it? Repo market is probably the single most important market that you've never heard about. And there's really no reason anyone has ever heard about. But let me tell you something. The repo market, it's about a trillion dollars every single day. Trillion dollars. There is no market bigger than that in the world. And it's strange that you've never heard about it, except maybe when it broke in, in September 2019. Um, what repo is, is just a secured loan. Let's say you have $100 in treasuries and you need some cash. Okay, then you show up at the repo market. You can instantly borrow against your treasuries for cash instantly and at a super, super cheap rate. In a sense, it's one of the key things that makes treasury securities so money-like because if you have a treasury security, you can go to the repo market and convert it into cash anytime you want at a very low rate. You can also think of it as a market for leverage as well. If I am a hedge fund and I want to buy treasuries, borrow money and buy treasury securities, I can also go to the repo market. The way that this would work is the hedge fund would buy a treasury security from its broker. Okay, you ask, well, where does he get the money from to pay for that treasury security? Oh, he buys the treasury security from the broker and he immediately repos it out for cash and uses that cash to pay his broker. So in a sense, the hedge fund just shows up, buys a treasury on, with a ginormous margin loan, a ginormous repo loan. So it's how a lot of these um, leveraged investors express their views in treasury markets, like we just discussed uh, a few moments ago. So in the cash futures basis trade, a futures con- sells a futures contract for treasuries forward and but buys the cash treasuries funded in repo. When the repo market works, the treasury market, every, all the financing situation is, is very smooth because you can easily lend money to buy treasury securities. But when it breaks, then the treasury market can also potentially have problems because then people who are buying the treasuries might not be able to get financing. If you recall, back in September 2019, the repo market spiked significantly. That was a very uncommon thing because repo is a very liquid market. In September 2019, the repo, repo rates were trading about, let's say, two and a quarter percent. And it usually trades in a narrow range, a plus or minus a few fractions of a percent. But on September 2019, it actually spiked, I think, as high as 10% in one day and then crashed back down. So that was a great cause of concern because the repo market is such a bedrock part of the financial system that the Fed intervened immediately by um, offering emergency repo loans and also restarting, in a sense, light version of quantitative easing. You can think of the repo market as really the plumbing of the financial system. Super important, usually super boring, 
Uh, but if it breaks, then I think it has the potential to break a lot more in the financial system. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. People love talking about the Powell pivot or the Fed put. You know, when is the Fed going to reverse the tightening? Right now, we're seeing quantitative tightening from the Fed. And you mentioned the repo markets back in September 2019, that market breaking and the Fed stepping in. 
you know, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet actually had a local bottom around September of 2019. So was it the repo market back then that kind of forced the Fed to reverse course back then? Or what are your thoughts on what caused the Fed to reverse from tightening to easing? It was 100% the, the repo market, as you mentioned, Clay. So the Fed was doing QT back then. But the thing is, the financial system is such a big and complicated thing. The Fed doesn't actually know, when have I gone too far? As we all know, the Fed has a tendency to do things until something breaks, right? So in 2018, it was hiking interest rates, and the equity markets imploded heading into Christmas. And then you know, Jay Powell woke up in oh, January 2019, huge Powell pivot. You know, guys, I told you a few months ago, I was going to write hike rates in 2019. Actually, I'm going to start cutting and cutting by a lot. And so in 2019, September, a similar thing happened. We were doing QT until something broke. Okay, when you break, that's all right. Then we do a pivot. We pivot again, and we start expanding the balance sheet. And everything was, I don't know, was okay. So I suspect that going forward, as we're looking, as we're looking to what the Fed is going to do in the coming months, um, it's probably the same thing will play out. It's not that the Fed purposely is doing this. It's just that it's really hard to know how things will evolve. And so you have a plan, but things happen. You be nimble and you, you pivot. Back then, uh, in quantitative tightening broke the uh, repo market. This time, it would be something different. It's never the same thing twice. Um, the Fed is actually has this permanent lending facility in the repo market. Remember, Fed is lender of last resort to basically everyone now. Now, specific facility as lender of last resort in repo. So that's not going to break anymore. So the next time, uh, it'll be something different. To try and forecast where asset prices are moving, Dan Rasmussen was one of the guests on our show. And he likes to look at the high yield spread. And it seems like he was able to sort of time that March 2020, you know, potential bottom around then, just looking at the high yield spread and using that as a guide to where the economy is moving towards. Is this something you look at or you think is important? Or what are some indicators you like to look at yourself? I think that's a really good indicator. And I think it's a good indicator because it's also one of the indicators that the Fed looks at. And remember, what I think is the most important single digit factor in understanding uh, the markets is to look at what the Fed is thinking and what the Fed will do. Okay, just we can just replay this really quickly. Let's say the past few months. Again, like we discussed earlier, the Fed's mandate is full employment and price stability. Okay, that's not where the Fed wants it to be. And we also know that the Fed, since the GFC, has been using uh, the markets as a policy tool through the wealth effect, as we discussed earlier, to try to get growth and inflation up. If we're in a situation where the Fed is not meeting its inflation mandates, then obviously it's going to try to get to where the inflation is. Now, we know that it uses the stock market as a tool through the wealth effect. Well, logically, it's a tool that can be used in both ways. You have a wealth effect to boost growth and inflation. You can have a reverse wealth effect to tame inflation and tame inflation. And in fact, you'd have former Fed officials basically come out and suggest that former uh, president of the New York Fed. Dudley was on, um, actually he's on TV a lot saying something similar. And that's kind of what's been happening so far. Fed is raising rates, trying to, what they would say is called tighten financial conditions. But what it happens is not just that the high yield spread blows out, but equity prices go lower, treasury prices go lower, bond prices go lower, and everything like that. If you understood what the Fed was concerned about and what its toolkit was, then you can see that this is going to happen from the past few months. And you can also understand that. In the next few months, uh, it's probably going to continue doing this. 
Uh, it's going to continue doing this until it reaches its inflation mandate, which is around 2%. Uh, we, could, we could be a ways off. So going forward, since I believe that the most important thing to focus on is the Fed's reaction, at this point, it's going to be looking at inflation numbers. Fed is actually a pretty transparent institution. We will basically take out a billboard and tell you what they're going to do. And they're going to tell you the metrics in case that you know, what they think happens doesn't happen. So what they're telling you now, inflation has to go down and has to be clear and convincing. It has not done so, so they're going to continue to hike. And quantitative tightening uh, is probably going to take a, take a lot of the wind out of the sails as well. Um, I think we have more pain ahead, is from what I understand. Does the stock market serve as an indicator of the overall health of the financial system? And what are your thoughts on how the stock market plays into all of this? You know, earlier we talked about how asset prices definitely play into people's ability to get credit and take on loans. Is there any other sort of ways that the stock market plays into this? So I'm part of the camp that believes that the stock market is not the economy. And so I think the stock market and the real economy are related, but they're ultimately, they're partly related, but they're separate things. And the reason is that, I mean, you can see many cases, the stock market is a monetary thing. It's driven by things like monetary policy. For example, in March 2020, you had the real economy on standstill, right? Everyone was at home doing nothing, and yet you had the stock market going to the moon. You know, obviously, if you had a stock market that was tightly related to the real economy, you would not have expected that. But the stock market is not so much driven by, in my view, not so much driven by what the real economy does, but what the financial economy does. And back then, the Fed was cutting interest rates and injecting trillions of dollars into the, into the markets. And that, that just makes markets go to the moon. The real economy and the financial economy, in my view, are connected basically through the Fed, because the Fed is such a large driver in financial markets, but they react to what happens in the real economy. If you have a real economy that is you know, not doing well, you know, maybe the Fed will cut rates and do QE. And so sometimes, yes, you can see sometimes bad news is good news. And we see that happen a lot in the past few years. You know, the real economy perversely matters mostly because it matters through the reaction of the Fed. If you talk about things like earnings and revenue and things like that, from my perspective, it's hard to see those traditional variables having a lot of impact on stock prices. Um, what I've seen over the past few years I mean, just very recently, you can have companies that have no profits and revenue and probably never will just go to the moon. And you can have companies who are very stable, old economy companies who just don't go anywhere. I think that you know, focusing on the real economy, try to understand the stock market, just in, in this age, isn't very helpful. It might have been helpful back in the 1980s, 1990s, 1970s, but the market changes a lot. It's a more of a psychology thing as well. I look at what the Fed does and what market psychology is that I, I don't focus on the real economy so much in determining stock prices. You know, it really hurts to hear you say that, you know, we are founded <laughs> on uh, Warren Buffett's value investing principles. And it only seems like investing over the years has gotten more and more difficult as the Federal Reserve has its increased role. And related to Ray Dalio's thesis on the long-term debt cycle I mentioned earlier, I've been hearing talks of some sort of monetary restructuring or some sort of monetary reset globally. However you want to frame it, governments are over-indebted and something will eventually need to change in the system. What are your general thoughts on this and where we might be heading in the future? I agree with that sentiment. We are, I think something's fundamentally changing the world. I don't actually worry about government debt so far because when you're off the gold standard, 
you don't have any debt limit. You can do whatever you want. And you actually, they actually do whatever they want. In the US in particular, because we have the reserve currency, if you think back just uh, to what happened in March 2020, governments around the world did a lot of fiscal stimulus, but there's a big difference between them and what they did. If you are a poorer country, a developing country, you did a little bit. Some countries, well, let's say other comparable advanced countries, like say Europe, gave their people a little bit of money, but because they're at home, giving a little bit of money to help them out with the hard times. But in the US, or the US government actually gave people more money than they did when they were working. So governments are doing very strange things and very fiscally responsible things. Why would someone earn more money staying at home than when they were actually working, right? The governments seem to be spending without control and their debt is growing without limit. But that's not a concern because they can always pay it. They have the money printer. They have the Fed can always buy it. Things like default is never a concern. Interest rates are never a concern. These are things that are completely within their control. But what they can't control, though, is inflation. If you have a government that just spends and spends, prints and spends without limit, eventually you'll get inflation. And I think that's really um, probably these, the long-term endgame. That or governments become more responsible and no longer spend as well. Trying to tie things together with my discussion earlier. When a government is doing deficit spending, it's issuing debt, in the US's case, treasury securities and purchasing goods and services with it. But if you can think of $100 in treasuries as kind of a form of money, as if it were a $100 bill, then you can understand that what they're really doing is they're printing money and just buying it on goods and services. And that's inherently inflationary. Again, they're never default and they can always control the interest rates, but they can't always control inflation. And if we're heading into a world, and I think we are, where there are, that is structurally inflationary, for example, if we have a world where there's less globalization, and if we have a world where we have an aging population, which we do, then I think that spells a very, very big dilemma going forward. In my view, that an aging population is pretty inflationary because you're reducing the supply of labor. For example, let's say that you're a boomer, you have a million dollars in your bank account, and you retire. Then you stop working, you stop producing goods and services, but you're still buying stuff, you're still consuming. And everyone does that, a lot of people do that, then obviously fewer supply of goods and services, but you still maintain a level of demand. So that kind of pushes prices higher. The monetary set will have to be done in a way to try to control this inflation. And ultimately, that can only be done by controlling government spending. It's going to have to come with a new form of government. And I don't know what that will look like, but I think that will be a necessary part of any monetary reset. I completely agree that we very well could see an inflationary decade ahead due to all of the items you just mentioned. And you know that's going to throw a lot of investors in for a world because we haven't seen inflation for many, many years. And many of the investors in the market haven't even seen inflation over their whole lifetime. So it's going to be really interesting to watch play out. I wanted to mention another hot topic, which is CBDCs. How do CBDCs play into this? It's potentially another tool that the Fed can use to try and have a bigger influence on the markets and kind of control the economy in the way they'd like. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this as well. So a CBDC is basically a government-issued electronic form of money. So right now, you and I, we have deposits at our commercial bank, so the JPM. Um, a CBDC would allow us to have deposits at the Fed. Now, I think of the CBDC as basically just a, another political tool. And you'll notice that across the world, the governments that are most interested in the CBDCs are the most authoritarian. The CBDCs are most advanced in China. 
And in China, the government has you know cameras everywhere, and literally just know based on your cell phone where you are all the time. Now, if you have a government that really wants complete control of the social system, they will also want to have complete control over the financial system, and that's what a CBDC allows them to do. Right now, if I'm buying something、uh, with my bank account at JPM, the government actually doesn't know that, doesn't know what I'm buying or selling. It can ask for it, but it doesn't know it itself. That data belongs to JPM. But if everything were a CBDC and or deposits were at the Fed, then they would know that, and they would be able to,、um, I guess, have more policy levers. I find the idea of CBDCs personally to be very frightening because I remember what happened in Canada recently, where you know, Prime Minister Trudeau saw that there were people protesting against him. He didn't like it, and so he just kind of shut down their bank accounts. If in the future all your money is held at deposit at the Fed, that can happen very easily. It's a dangerous thing to do. If you look at in the U.S., for example, and you talk about CBDCs, you get a kind of a, a mixed reception. You will have people like former Fed Governor Randall Quarles who will be like, "Yeah, we don't really need CBDCs. I don't see the purpose of it." And you will have people like Governor Brainerd who are more pro it. Now, from a functional standpoint, it's really hard to see why we would need CBDCs. If you are a CBDC proponent, you will talk about things like safety, being very efficient, and banking the unbanked, and all that stuff. In my in my view, obviously not true. In my when I use the banking system today, all my payments are instant. If I ever have, you know, someone is stealing my card or using it, the bank gives me back my money. My money I can send instantly, and I never have any trouble using the banking system today. And I think it's strange that a CBDC would improve upon that. It's like going from FedEx to the post office. Is that supposed to make things better? But also something to keep in mind is that if you're talking about the unbanked, there are banks everywhere in the U.S. You walk in and they'll give you a bank account and a cup of coffee. To think that the Fed would be able to provide banking services better to the unbanked, I think that's not realistic as well. I don't see any compelling reason for a CBDC, and I'm wary that it may be used as a form of policy tool, form of control that walks us down, I think, a more dangerous route. I think those in the Bitcoin space would just say that CBDCs are just a giant advertisement board for Bitcoin. You know, you, you mentioned China, how they're wanting to adopt a CBDC and China doesn't like Bitcoin at all. They they don't want their citizens to be able to send and receive their own you know form of money. Super interesting topic, and hopefully the U.S. doesn't go that route. But we'll see. I hope they don't. It's going to be a political decision. I think that if we had a Chair Brainerd, we would actually have a CBDC very soon. But because we have Chair Paul, I, I, I'm not sure, and I think that's a good thing. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I really enjoyed reading your book, and really appreciate you sharing so much great information with our audience. If those in the audience enjoyed this conversation and want to learn more, I recommend checking out Joseph's book. It's called Central Banking 101. I'll be sure to have it linked in the show notes to give you guys easy access. For those interested in connecting with you, Joseph, where can they go to get connected with you? And just wanted to give you the opportunity to share anything else you'd like. Thanks so much, Clay. First of all, I just like to repeat that you know delighted to be here. I think you guys make really great podcasts. I've certainly learned a lot from them. And if you want to hear more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at FedGuy12. I also have a website, FedGuy.com, where I blog about things that are happening in the market. And I also have some online courses for those who are, I think, want a more in-depth look into the money markets and the Fed's balance sheet. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joseph. My pleasure. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.